in the early morning hours of April 15, 1865, two men approached a small farmhouse of a local doctor in southern Maryland. One of the men that night was gravely injured. His leg was broken, and the man claimed that he uh, fell off his horse and broke it. The doctor didn't think twice before getting quickly to work treating the poor man's leg, and he cut the leather boot off his foot, splinted the fractured fibula, gave him a spare shoe to wear, and arranged for a carpenter to make him some crutches. He was paid $25 for his services, if only health care was that same price nowadays. The two men then were permitted to stay at the farmhouse until later that next day when they vanished as quickly as they came. It wasn't until the next day when that doctor went into town to run some errands that this story gets a little bit uh, muddier. This whole town was in an uproar because the previous night, President Abraham Lincoln, while attending a performance at Ford's Theater, was shot. And the assailant was still at large, a man by the name of John Wilkes Booth. And as would later be uncovered, Booth, in attempting to flee the scene of the crime, leapt over the railing of the president's box, but his spur of his boot got caught on the flag that was adorning the front of it, causing Booth to then land awkwardly on the stage where he then broke his leg. According to eyewitnesses, he then flashed a bloody dagger on the stage and yelled, Six Semper Tyrannus, then hobbled backstage exiting the theater and jumped onto a horse, and he and another guy made their escape into southern Maryland. The doctor then realized that the man he tended to last night was none other than America's most wanted. Now, depending on who you ask, some believe the good doctor had something to do with Lincoln's assassination. That the doctor because he waited a whole day before reporting to authorities all of this, led many to speculate, even to this day, that he was somehow in cahoots with Booth the entire time, so much so that the physician was later arrested and convicted of being a co-conspirator. But some believe he was innocent, that he didn't know who Booth was, and that just being a doctor, he helped someone in need. He was just an honest guy stuck between a rock in a hard place. But however you slice it, history doesn't remember too kindly of this poor old doctor, largely because of his name. Dr. Samuel Mudd. Have you ever heard the expression, his name is Mudd? This expression likely predated Samuel Mudd, but the poor guy's name coincidentally lent itself so conveniently to the expression that folks started believing the phrase originated with him. Saying someone's name is Mud is the same as saying your opinion of them is so low that they're no better than the mud beneath your feet. And over a hundred years later, everyone remembers Samuel's name as good as Mud, while coincidentally his name was just already Mud. This morning, I'd like to talk about another person whose name was Mud. His name meant the following. You can take your pick. Usurper, trickster, schemer, con artist, heel grabber or heel holder. Those last two will make sense in a moment. I've told you before that names in the Bible were not just labels that you put on someone's birth certificates. Names in ancient Israel were synonymous with your essence. The core of someone's being, who you were. 
They served as descriptions or more like prescriptions of your inner character and reputation and arguably your destiny. And so we find this morning our so-named trickster and schemer and heel grabber quite literally in the mud this morning. All alone on the banks of the Jabbok River, we find Jacob or Jacob all by himself. And I like to think that sitting in the soggy dirt on the banks of the riverside as night falls and listening to the current pass, maybe the crickets are beginning their evening concert and the fireflies are providing the light show. Maybe Jacob is wondering how he got here. How he, a man whose name was mud, ended up in the mud. To understand how we got here, we have to go back, quite frankly, to Jacob's birth. And you all know I can talk fast, so we'll go through this pretty quickly. Jacob's parents were a man named Isaac and a woman named Rebekah. And Genesis says, the Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. And as the fetuses gestated in her womb, she didn't just feel them kick like normal mothers do. She felt them, Genesis says, struggle within her almost as if there was a wrestling match inside her belly as to who would be born first. So right out of the gate, Genesis is already foreshadowing the kind of guy Jacob is destined to be. Rebecca does what any godly woman does, and she prays about it. And remarkably, God explains to her, your sons and your womb will become two nations, and the two will be arch rivals. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Put that in your prayer journal. The woman comes, moment comes for the boys to be born, and the first to come is a boy named Esau, so named because he was red and hairy. What a name. But close behind Esau, literally on his heels is Jacob, exiting his mother's belly, the narrator points out, firmly grasping his older brother's heel. There you see it, the heel grabber. He haven't even cut the umbilical cord yet, and the narrator's already tipping us off to the kind of guy Jacob is, born to be devious and cunning and crafty and deceitful. In other words, the narrator is saying, keep an eye on this one because you want to be careful. My brother's middle name is Jacob. I always knew that. There was something suspicious about it. My parents still don't believe me. We then fast forward a couple decades to when the boys are now grown men and we're in the kitchen. Maybe you know this famous scene where Jacob, who has grown up to be a bit of a mama's boy, a bit of a homebody, who was said to be quiet and well-mannered, harmless as a dove, but shrewd as a snake. He's busy preparing lunch, or as some of y'all in Nebraska call it, supper. I don't know why you do that. Esau is an outdoorsman. He's a hunter, a man's man. He barges into the kitchen famished from work. He gets a whiff of Jacob's stew, and he wants it. Apparently, it was to die for, or more like Esau was on the verge of dying of starvation if he didn't get any of it to eat. Esau's being a little bit melodramatic, don't you think? But in his desperation, Esau is blissfully unaware that he's just walked into a trap set by none other than the heel grabber. Esau's got something Jacob wants. The thing he's wanted since before they were born. He wants the birthright. The rights and privileges of being the eldest. The prominence and power in the family. The double portion of the estate. He wants it all. So he offers a deal to his brother. A bowl of some delicious lentil stew for your birthright. That's a bargain as far as Jacob is concerned. 
Act fast before it's gone. Esau reckons what good will birthright to be, be to him if he's dead. So he makes a deal with the devil in more ways than one. Making a gentleman's agreement and callously forfeiting his birthright to Jacob. And as Esau is scarfing down his meal, Jacob is slyly smiling to himself. His first taste of his namesake. And he's one step closer to getting what he wants. What was prophesied to be his. Yes, perhaps he's caught wind of what the Lord told his mother concerning his destiny. About being the stronger son. About being the ruler. Esau didn't even realize what's going on. Jacob thinks he's a fool. He's been able to easily take advantage of his brother when he was most vulnerable to get what he wants. But many of us may be scratching our heads. How is this the one God wants to bless? Maybe he gets his devilish traits from his mother. Who not long afterwards actually becomes an accomplice or a co-conspirator or an enabler of Jacob's schemes to usurp his brother. One day she overhears Isaac's intention of bestowing the blessing, the one passed down to him from his father, Abraham, onto Esau before he dies. Rebecca hears this and hatches a plan, almost as if she's been waiting for this day to come. And she hatches a scheme to trick her now blind husband into giving her favorite child the blessing. Jacob's going to disguise himself as Esau right down to wearing Esau's clothing. Notice that nowhere does Jacob object to this plan. Instead, he contently goes right along with it, playing his part. Jacob goes into the presence of his aging father, convincing him he's not who he says he is, and steals the blessing right behind Esau's back and right under his father's nose, almost literally. Now, instead of just going for his brother's heel, instead of just going for the birthright, Jacob goes right for the jugular and takes the blessing. The blessing God gave to his grandfather way back when. The blessing of abundance and prosperity and protection. It was his now and his alone. Ironically, the blessing that Jacob steals is the one God destined to give him all along. And again, either Jacob knows this or he's unaware about this, or he just refuses to believe it. But Jacob spends so much of his time and energy trying to scheme and seize the very thing God promised he'd get one day. And instead of relying on God's timing, and instead of waiting on God's plans, instead of trusting God, Jacob manipulates and he pulls strings, anything to get what he wants, no matter the collateral damage. Whether it's humiliating his father, or burning a bridge with his brother, so much so that Jacob is forced to flee home as Esau, upon hearing what Jacob has done, is out for blood. Now in exile, the heel grabber goes to live with his uncle Laban, a distant relative on his mother's side. Genesis says, as soon as Laban heard that his nephew Jacob had arrived, he ran out and met him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him home. I cannot hear echoes of the prodigal son when I hear this story, but this ain't that story. Not by a long shot. Jacob may be a prodigal, but Laban is more so. 
The two are exactly the same. We'll see that Laban is just as much of a schemer and manipulator and liar as Jacob. And maybe this runs in the family because, again, Genesis says when Jacob told him his entire story, Laban exclaimed, you are my own flesh and blood. Maybe even Laban sees the mirror image of himself in his nephew. And for the next 20 years, the fugitive apprentice will go blow for blow with the seasoned master. Laban has two daughters, the beautiful Rachel and the weak-eyed Leah. Translated, Rachel was prettier than Leah. Jacob is madly in love with Rachel and agreed to work for Laban in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. And for seven years, Jacob worked for Leah on Laban's farm. But Genesis says the love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. It sounds like a Hallmark movie, but this ain't a Hallmark movie. The time came for the wedding, and that evening when Jacob goes into the wedding chamber when it's dark to, let's just say, consummate the marriage. Laban unexpectedly switched Rachel and Leah, and Jacob unwittingly slept with Leah instead of Rachel making Leah his wife. How you don't realize you're sleeping with the wrong person is beyond me. Genesis doesn't elaborate. What matters is that the con man got conned. The trickster got tricked. What goes around comes around, I suppose, and Jacob's sins had a way of catching up to him. He got to experience the embarrassment and the frustration of being cheated, just like his father and brother, and Jacob doesn't like it. But begrudgingly, Jacob agrees to work for Laban for another seven years to get what he's after. Laban ended up swindling 14 years of essentially free labor from the heel grabber. But Jacob's not one to take this lying down. And as the years tick on, I'll let you go back and read it in Genesis yourself. The two would continue to play cat and mouse with each other until the things escalate to a point where Jacob is forced to flee again from his uncle and return back to Esau and essentially face the music. Jacob, now with his wives and 11 sons and all the livestock and wealth he had amassed, Starts retracing the steps he made all those years ago. And as he gets closer and closer, he starts to get a little nervous and sends some messengers to Esau, alerting him of his arrival. The messengers come back and say, hey, we got good news. Esau's actually coming out to meet you, he and his entire army. Jacob understandably panics. Genesis tells us Jacob then divided the people who were into two groups If Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that's left may escape. The narrator isn't trying to hide or sugarcoat Jacob's intentions here. He's still trying to save his own skin at the expense of others, including his own wife and children. Jacob isn't even subtle either. Guess who he puts in the front to greet Esau first? Guess who it is? Leah and all of her kids. They're the first to greet daddy's arch rival and the one hell-bent of killing him. And, of course, behind her is Rachel and her kids. And Jacob, all by him, loathsome, bringing up the caboose. Jacob is willing to sacrifice his family and possessions before himself. Father and husband of the year, ladies and gentlemen. And this is where we finally catch up to the heel grabber this morning. The guy whose name is as good as mud, sitting in the mud, on the eve of reuniting with Esau, With Laban behind him and Esau before him, Jacob contemplates his uncertain future. Physically exhausted, deeply anxious about tomorrow, sleep escapes him and his fears sink in. He's achieved a lot. 
whether it's his brother's birthright, his father's blessing, the woman of his dreams, present security. But at what cost? Jacob seemed to be willing to sell his soul if it meant getting what he wanted. No matter the costs, no matter the collateral damage, he found a way to get on top. You got to at least give him some credit. You got to at least admire his gumption and his tenacity and his resourcefulness, his passion, his drive, his ambition. But his way of going about it is all crooked. He's willing to lie and cheat and trick and steal to get what God has already ordained for him to give. Tim Mackey with the Bible Project makes this observation I've never noticed. Who else in Genesis is willing to lie, cheat, trick, and steal to get what he wants? The serpent. The serpent. While others occasionally act like the snake from the Garden of Eden, Mackey argues Jacob doesn't just occasionally act like a snake. He seems to be born a treacherous lying snake. He's the personification of the servant. He's playing by the serpent's playbook and not God's. Not to say he's the only one that does, but Jacob easily takes the cake. He's supposed to be the hero, the inheritor of God's blessing, the chosen one. But at best, he seems more like an anti-hero or maybe he's just a plain old villain. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm left scratching my head wondering why God and his infinite wisdom would choose to work with this guy. The biggest usurper and con artist and conniving, sly, slick offspring of the devil himself. Why him? Why didn't God choose Esau? Why did God choose someone snake-bitten like Jacob? Out of nowhere, someone jumps him and wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. And before anyone voices their theories, we're simply told it was a man. The fact that this wrestling match took place at night reveals that the man wanted to remain anonymous. We'll never actually told explicitly his identity. Jacob will have his guess in a moment. The term rendered wrestled includes part of the Hebrew word dust. So more woodenly translated could mean to grapple or to get dusty. The point is that this was not some sort of metaphorical wrestling match or a dream. The two men are actually engaged in a physical altercation to the point that they're rolling around in the dirt and likely getting mud splashed in their faces from the river. So before you think this is some sort of playful wrestling like you did when you were kids in the living room floor, these guys weren't messing around. For, for unfortunately, Scripture doesn't give us the blow-by-blow details. Hours tick by as the night rolls on and soon dawn is approaching and Genesis says when the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of sockets. Where a mere touch, this man is able to dislodge Jacob's hip out of a joint. Touch is such a gentle term. Ordinarily, we might see the word punch or kick or something with more force, but not touch not touched. And so the fact means that this is no mere man that Jacob is wrestling with that can just do this to another person. And maybe this is when Jacob is realizing he's not wrestling with an ordinary man, that he's dueling with someone who happens to have supernatural abilities. But notice that the man who has the power to injure Jacob does not totally defeat him. The assailant could have easily won the fight hours ago, but chooses to stay in it, or better yet, allows Jacob to stay in it. It's almost like a bunch of kids are trying to tackle and stop dad from scoring a touchdown and play 
pick up football in the backyard. They're overmatched. Jacob's overmatched. Yet Genesis says, did you catch this? When the man saw that he would not win the match. What does it mean that Jacob appears to be winning? What kind of man is Jacob that he can force a draw with this guy? Is the man truly losing or is he throwing the match and losing on purpose? Those are my biggest questions. I don't know about you. Presumably, in order to maintain his anonymity, the man said to Jacob, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob, realizing that this opponent is no mere man, instead wants to keep holding on for a blessing. I will not let you go until you bless me. Ever the opportunist, he wasn't going to let someone like this go without at least attempting to get something from him. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob. A name as good as mud. Despite being known as to be a liar, Jacob tells the truth. He admits he's the heel grabber, the trickster, the schemer. And maybe Jacob's honesty plays as the man who then proceeds with the blessing. Your name will no longer be Jacob, for now you will be called Israel. Because you have fought with God and with men and have won. The blessing is tied with a new identity. And as the morning sun starts to crest over the horizon, Jacob demands to know the identity of the man. Tell me your name. I like to think that the man smirked and then said before disappearing, why do you want to know my name? Jacob already knows the answer. He didn't need the man to spoon feed it to him. All night, Jacob wrestled with God. And just as the man first appeared, he mysteriously disappeared as the morning rays touched Jacob's face. And as Jacob, now Israel, sat on the edges of the river again, all alone, now muddy, dirty, likely bruised, if not bleeding, touching now the permanently injured hip, he starts putting together the pieces of what happened that night. And all he can do is make a landmark out of it, calling the place Peniel, which means face of God. For I've seen God face to face, yet my life was spared. And then our hero limps off with quite the story to tell. There's a lot to unpack in this story. Much of it's shrouded in mystery, so there's a lot that we admittedly don't know and will never know, and maybe it's best to leave it that way. But in our remaining moments, I just want to offer some thoughts, and maybe it'll make sense to some of you. I think this story teaches us something about our God that we often don't talk about. That our God often makes us wrestle with him for the blessings that he wishes to give us. Now, I'm not saying that we can declare whatever blessing we want and then fight God for it. God initiates the struggle with us in moments or seasons of our lives where he wants to wrestle with us about something. Not in an abusive way, but in a sanctifying way. He wants to give us something, but in his wisdom and love, he doesn't allow us to just nab it easily. He could gift it to us, but the process and and the struggle, in other words, is just as meaningful as the blessing itself. That we have to work for it or wrestle for it. God makes us yearn and and fight with him. We almost have to grasp it in such a way that, that we're wounded and that we're broken in the process. But in the process, we grow and mature into who he wants us to be. Our God 
is love. But our God is also a fighter. Our God is our defender and the great physician and a provider. But our God is also willing to wound us if necessary for our benefit. Both can be true at the same time. And we have to somehow hold them in tension with one another. And as I've come to see it, wrestling with God becomes like a sort of crucible. A furnace where, where, where precious metals are, are put through intense heat and pressure. Where they're, where they're broken down and melted and pressed and flattened in shape. Where the impurities and the slag are removed. Wrestling with God is kind of like that. That we pass through the fire, so to speak. Through these seasons of difficulty and hardship and bitterness and God-forsakenness and trials. And that we put our, our, our preconceived notions and convictions about who God is and, and, and who we are through the pressure cooker. And, and they're baked and they're thrust often under intense heat and pressure, which often results in some discomfort and some pain and grief. But if we endure, more often than not, a different, more refined image of ourselves and God comes out on the other side. So to enter the chambers of the crucible is to enter the ring, so to speak, with God. And the Bible over and over again seems to paint the crucible, this this, this wrestling mat with God, as an opportunity for human beings to personally interact and engage and dialogue with God unlike any other places in their lives. It's where we learn things about God that we can't learn elsewhere or are impossible to comprehend outside of the crucible. And maybe those who are willing to enter the ring with God are the ones God wants to do business with. What if the reason that God chose Jacob, the reason God never gave up on him or counted him out, was that Jacob was willing to fight back? That Jacob was up to the challenge and the task of dancing with God when God suddenly attacked. I praised Jacob earlier for his gumption. Tenacity, drive, ambition, persistence. Maybe we call it moxie. The Hebrews called it chutzpah. Chutzpah is boldness and nerve and gutsiness. It's bravery. It's sheer audacity. It's a fire within a person that propels and motivates them. But here's the thing about chutzpah. It's kind of like the force in Star Wars. It's neutral by default, And it can be used for either good or for bad, but it's all up to the user. So Jacob had chutzpah, albeit a dark side version of it. Jacob wants God's blessing. He's got a fire in his belly when he wakes up every morning because he wants it. But he's got terrible motives and horrible methods. But compared to his brother, who is a more ideal candidate for the blessing who plays by the rules, who does his job, who knows his place, is stronger by the world's standards. He's, everything, everything's, he's got everything going for him, and he's safe, and he's nice, and, he clean, and he's clean. But he doesn't care. He doesn't have chutzpah. Or if he does, it's not for the things of God. And so perhaps God is saying, I would rather take a person who wants it over a person who doesn't person who's going to get up and go dig for it and push for it, do anything it takes to get it, to sacrifice for it, a person who's willing to sell everything they own if it meant buying a field that contained hidden treasure, 
Like a merchant who discovers a precious pearl and sells everything he has to possess it. God can steer a moving target and can work on the methods that Jacob's got that are so destructive. God can work with that. God is capable of transforming that. It's a lot easier to change the trajectory of a moving target than it is to light a fire under someone who's apathetic and doesn't care. If you have a fire in your belly, God can work with that. What if God is looking for people with chutzpah? People just like you. God would rather work with a Jacob than try to convince an Esau that it's worth it. God ain't going to twist your arm and convince you. He's after people who are hungry and have an appetite for him. God seems to be inclined to those who have a little bit of chutzpah, a zeal, a passion, a soul on fire because they care. God didn't put Jacob in his place with a slap on the wrist that we might expect. God rewarded him for his feisty persistence. Could it be that the picture of faith is not necessarily that we have is not necessarily wrong? It's just stale. Faith is not a one and done affair. Faith is not a quiet, oblivious stroll until we reach the pearly gates, timid of wanting to rock the boat. So we just blindly go through the motions. What if faith is a willingness to participate in such a way that we sometimes trade blows with God? To put some skin in the game and wrestle with it. To risk getting that personal and intimate with God. To risk seeing God face to face. That we ask the hard questions. That we voice aloud our frustrations and confusion at God's agenda That we may even get angry with God a time or two, or even we lament when tragedy strikes. Something, anything, anything to show God that we're here, that we're in this, that we care about this, that this matters to us, and that we're willing to hold on, that we don't don't forsake God, but instead we lean more into God. And while God may be acting mysteriously different at night than he does in the daylight, we're not going to let God Go without some sort of blessing because we know what the kind of God that he is. A God who is not safe but is good. A God who wants to bless us. I think many of us were told that God shuns this kind of behavior when instead I think he welcomes it. And maybe the reason God seems to be moving elsewhere is because we're become so apathetic towards him. It's not that we don't like God. It's just that we don't care anymore. How many of us have just given up too easily or dropped out prematurely? Jesus told the story about a persistent widow who kept pestering an unjust judge repeatedly over and over again every day for justice and a dispute she had with someone. And the judge eventually relents and gives her what she wants because of her insistence, because she never gave up, because she stayed in the fight, and one could argue that she had chutzpah. Jesus praises the grit of that widow and says, imagine how God, who is not an unjust judge, would respond to those with that kind of faith. And he ends that story saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? For some of us this morning, you'd say you either have wrestled with God or maybe you are wrestling with God right now. It may not be because God has abandoned you or is punishing you, I think it's the exact opposite. I think it's because you have chutzpah. And God likes people with a little bit of chutzpah. And God was wanting to unlock something in you to convince you otherwise. 
something that you can't unlock yourself. God wants to partner with you, collaborate with you. God is wanting to bless you. However, it can only happen through enduring the struggle with him, and it might momentarily hurt and leave residual scars. We serve a God who knows exactly what it's like to wrestle with God. You ever think about this? In his humanity, Jesus mysteriously embraced wrestling with God in Gethsemane. And in anguish, he embraced the dark night of the soul as the light of the world ventured further into the pits of human darkness. And he came out the other side early on Sunday morning while it was still dark, transformed but branded with nail holes in his wrists and his si- a hole in his side. So even Jesus has scars. And maybe we just have to hold on until daybreak whenever that comes. That we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Knowing that there's pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. That Easter lies on the other side if we just hold on. That the wounds of a friend can be trusted, but the enemy multiplies kisses. And what a friend we have who can sympathize with our struggle because he's experienced both sides of the fight. And when we emerge, friends... After our night wrestling with God, however long it takes, we emerge with a new identity, a new self, a new essence. Scholar Walter Brueggemann said, God remains God, his hiddenness intact, but Jacob is no longer Jacob. Now he is Israel. That is how Israel comes onto the horizon. Israel is not formed by success or shrewdness or land, but by an assault from God. And perhaps it is grace, but not the kind usually imagined. Jacob is not consulted about his new identity. It is given, even imposed. And when daylight comes, the stranger is gone, and so is Jacob. That there remains only Israel, blessed and named Israel is born in combat when he is asked about God's name. That is, who Jake, that is who Israel must now be on his way to his brother. The word Israel is a combination of the Hebrew words to conquer and God. And so embedded in Israel's new name is none other than God himself. God is capable of taking a name as good as mud and transforming it into one that now bears his own. Jacob was forever changed because of his fight with God. He was forced to admit who he was so that he could become someone new. He was no longer who he was, but instead who God pronounced him to be. But God had to kill Jacob's old self and resurrect a new Jacob, now called Israel. And he was born Jacob, but reborn Israel. The Apostle Paul regularly preached, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, but a new life has begun. Strip off that old self of nature, old sinful self nature, and put on the new nature and be renewed as you learn by, from, to know your creator and become like him. I think it all makes sense now that a part of the sanctification process is getting a new name from God, getting a new identity, a new essence, one bathed in God's holiness, but washed clean from the serpent's bite marks and the stain of sin. One modeled after our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one that now bears his name. We call them Christians and we bear the insignia of Christ. But we will have to let Christ crucify our old self. That old self has to disappear for our new self to emerge. Our old self has to die and a new self be resurrected from wrestling with God. The goal isn't to become Jacob. It's to become Israel. The one who conquered God. The one who wrestled with God and prevailed. And will be left with a new identity and a testimony. And likely some battle scars. Friends, do you have scars? 
I know I've got some wounds, and I can tell you mostly where I got them. They were painful, but I oddly look at them now with gratitude. Maybe the church is a community meant to be called those wrestling with God. That we're a group, what Henry Nouwen calls wounded healers. Where we make our wounds available as a source of healing. That we share testimonies about them. An inviting, hospitable place for those that are wrestling with God. For those who have a faith with a limp.